We saw price drops that we hadn't seen since 2008, so it was similar in that fashion. But we definitely didn't get a lot of the calls from banks and dealers, you know, looking to move risk that they had on their balance sheets over that period of time. There wasn't that pressure in the market that we saw definitely back in 2008. But from a speed perspective, it was much faster over the first two to three weeks of March than a lot of the pricing pressure we saw back in 2008. 2008, it felt like it was six months worth of every day the market would be lower. What was the next shoe to drop? Here, it felt like we could have gone six months over those two weeks, but it ended abruptly, probably kind of at the end of the month. We, we started to see some of that pressure abate with regards to forced selling, worrying about what kind of risk the banks had on their balance sheet just wasn't there. That was Steve DiVittorio, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 8 of Season 2 of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is particularly important right now because we are moving away from our every other week cadence and instead we'll be publishing episodes as close to real time as possible. We know that markets are moving quickly right now and we want to make sure we have our team's latest insights available for you as soon as we can. So on today's show, my colleague, Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Bearings Investment Institute and the firm's chief global strategist, spoke with two of Bearings' most senior fixed income traders, Steve DiVittorio, global head of public fixed income trading, and Rishi Kapoor, head of securitized trading. The conversation covers a lot of ground. Steve and Rishi provide insight into how fixed income markets functioned during the height of the recent volatility back in mid-March. They talk about how this crisis has been similar and different from those of the past. They also discuss how the many Fed and Treasury relief programs have impacted different fixed income markets in a variety of ways. And finally, they discuss the risks and opportunities on the horizon, including potential opportunities arising from some of the technical distortions in the market that the Fed programs have introduced. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Smart, Steve DiVittorio, and Rishi Kapoor. All right, Steve, Rishi, thank you for joining us today. I know that with markets bouncing around as they have, uh, time on a trading desk is precious. And so we appreciate your taking a little bit of time away from your desks to uh, give us a sense of what's going on. Steve, first of all, maybe if you could just tell us quickly what your role and title is at Bearings. Sure. Uh, I'm the Global Head of Public Fixed Income Trader. I'm directly responsible for trading out of the U.S. high-yield trading team, both bank loans and bonds. And, uh, and Rishi, what about your title and, and job? Christopher, thank you for having me. I am head of securitized trading and responsible for trading across ABS, CMBS, RMBS, and also developing strategy along with the PMs in those sectors. So I'm guessing that neither of you had much of a spring break this, uh, this year. Not much at all. That's pretty accurate. But if you could take us back uh, a few weeks to, uh, to mid-March, and Steve, let me start with you. 
the the very first days when the reports of uh, the coronavirus spreading into Europe, European countries, I think in particular, taking measures against them, shutting down businesses, shutting down travel. And that, I think, is where we saw markets really start to react. Can you describe what was going on in fixed income markets that you were watching? We know that there was a lot of dislocation uh, in prices given the news flow, but how, how were things breaking down from, the where, from where you were sitting? Sure. I think there were four events that sort of drove prices to, to go to where they went. First, you know, as the coronavirus became a global pandemic, I think high yield was trading relatively tight to other asset classes. And I think folks looked to preserve their capital. They were starting to sell via redemptions and, and via the high yield ETFs. And so we started to see prices start to drop with that selling. Then in the middle of the month, we also saw that uh, Saudi Arabia raised its production target on oil. And we started to see you know, with oil dropping to $30 a barrel, we started to see selling pressure in energy names and high yield as well. Names dropped as much as 30 to 40 points. So as you started to see prices drop, you know, not only from redemptions and from what was happening on in the energy sector, you started to see, you started to hear about some leverage in the system as well. And you started to see folks have to become forced sellers into the market to meet margin calls, whether it be in equities, whether it be in bank loans, asset backs. We heard about, uh, you know, leverage calls in, in, uh, in all of those asset classes. That also added pressure to the market. And then lastly, you, know, you had uh, companies like Boeing and Hilton draw down on their credit facilities. Uh, large private equity shops like Blackstone and Carlyle asked all their companies to do that as well. That made folks nervous about what was happening in the banking system, maybe forced you know, banks and dealers to retreat from providing liquidity in the market. So all those factors together took the high yield market from what was trading very close to par to mid-80s for some of the better credits that were out there, probably even more like 60s and 70s uh, uh, for, for lower quality names. So, you know, very fast, very quick, unprecedented drop in prices in the market, you know, over a two-week period of time. And for a lot of issuance, there was just no market at all? Uh, there were times where there were a lot of names that, yeah, there were no markets at all. Well, no bids. <laughs> you certainly could find paper for sale. And Rishi, same question for you in the uh, in the ABS markets. What did you see? Well, in, in securitize, we always lag the broader credit markets uh, in any kind of sell-off or any kind of tightening type uh, event. And it was no different, you know, early mid-March uh, as oil traded down to the low 30s, as uh, Steve alluded to, around March 9th. And, you know, IG cash spreads gapped 25 to 30 basis points wider. Securitize was essentially just watching the show. Not a lot happening. And then suddenly around like March 11th, when we felt a lot of selling pressure coming in from redemptions and liquidations and things of that nature for money managers, we really felt the market severely dislocated. Spreads on top tier credit cards and autos, which are considered very highly liquid ABS assets, blew out to about 75 to 80, uh, which is about three to four times what we saw in spreads mid-February from an expansion standpoint. So that was, you know, pretty decent amount of spread widening. And then the, the selling pressure just continued. Every day, we saw money managers looking to fund redemptions, fund flow-related sales, liquidations, things of that nature. And we saw spreads essentially widen all the way to 500 around March 19th. And then, you know, the market was really hopeful of some kind of Fed announcement. I think they were expecting it. And that came through. Uh, as the Fed announced, you know, the various liquidity facilities around March 25th, 
we saw some normalization, but essentially what we really saw was, you know, bid ask on higher quality front end products was uh, three to five points, which is, you know, we never see that. You had really have to go back to the great financial crisis to see that type of bid ask on AAA paper. Daily volumes were two to three times normal of what we would normally see. But that really wasn't indicative of supply either. If you measure supply by BVIC activity, that was three to four times normal volumes. So you're talking two and a half to three billion dollars worth of BVIC a day. When normally you see about 500 to a billion. There was no consistency in clearing levels. You couldn't even get a bid at times, as you alluded to on the high yield side. We had trouble ourselves while we were liquidating certain certain products. We couldn't even find a bid from a dealer. So those were essentially, you know. Uh, the issues the market faced. And then we also saw a pretty pronounced distinguishing uh, feature in the market, you know, infected and non-infected sectors, and that still continues. And when you say BWIC, that's bid wanted in competition. That's correct. That's when a seller is looking to exit positions. They put out, you know, a certain amount of bonds and QCIPs into the market looking for buyers to bid the positions. Yes. Understood. Well, before we get into the Fed's reaction and what how order was restored, at least to some extent today, let's go back a little bit, because I think for a lot of us, as we have watched prices drop so dramatically so quickly, the first thing that leaps to mind is the day we heard the news about Lehman and its uh, liquidation. Maybe, Steve, tell us what you were doing in 2008 when you heard that news and how that those markets compared to what we're seeing today. Sure. I was working for Bearings back in 2008 as well, trading mostly bank loans at the time. And I remember the Sunday that the news came out and I remember the fear around what was on banks' balance sheets at the time, how much risk did we not know about the banks were taking back then, what kind of pressure are we going to see on prices in not only bank loans, but in high yield and across all kind of asset classes over that period of time. So it was a, it was a, there was a lot of fear in the market at that time, not dissimilar to what we felt, I guess, for the, the two weeks here as well. The, the price drops were, were large. We were nervous around how much leverage there was in the system. We heard about margin calls uh, in different asset classes, and we saw price drops that we hadn't seen since 2008. So it was similar in that fashion. But we, we didn't, definitely didn't get a lot of the calls from banks and dealers you know, looking to move risk that they had on their balance sheets over that period of time. There wasn't that pressure in the market that we saw definitely back in 2008. So in that regard, it was it was different. But from a speed perspective, it was much faster over the first you know two to three weeks of March than a lot of the pricing pressure we saw back in 2008. 2008, it felt like it was six months worth of every day the market would be lower. What was the new sh- next shoe to drop? Here, it felt like we could have gone six months over those two weeks, but it ended abruptly uh, probably kind of at the end of the month, we, we started to see some of that pressure abate with regards to forced selling, worrying about what kind of risk the banks had on their balance sheet just wasn't there. And, and Rishi, what do you remember from 2008 and how were things different uh, in your markets? I was trading on bearings too in 2008, but I was a really young trader and had just joined the desk in 2007. So my, my learning curve was pretty steep. <laughs> um, um, what I really remember... I mean, I think it's important to highlight what Steve just mentioned as my first observation that the speed and velocity of how we got here in March was so fast. It's, it felt like we traveled three weeks and three plus months in 08 or 09 for the same time period. Uh, so that was pretty brutal. 
Number two, I think it's important to highlight the the difference in the composition of the market now versus what we had in 2008. RMBS was a much bigger part of the market pre-crisis in 08, 09. You know, a non-agency RMBS is not not that big of a deal now as it was then. In ABS, if you look at other sectors, which are not your on-the-run sectors, they make up about 25 to 30% of the current market versus 10% of what the market used to be pre-2008. And those differences are important because you introduce sectors like consumer loans, solar, pace, and aviation, which are pretty new sectors. So there's a lot of diversity in collateral and structure. And what that's done is also brought in a change demographic, a change investor demographic into the mix. A lot of crossover buyers, first-time participants, or investors reaching for yield, not really having spent a lot of time in securitized markets or structures and not really having a good understanding. So those are the key differences. And what, from a liquidation standpoint, I remember hedge funds unwinding pretty much on a daily basis. In 2008, this time it was more money managers funding redemptions and not hedge funds. Uh, One big difference from maybe why the pricing was so severe this time around is the existence of trace. We did not have trace as a way of providing transparency to pricing in 2008. But with trace in the picture now, you know, it created really bigger price declines pretty much on an hourly basis. Tell us quickly what trace does. Trace essentially provides you the ability to track pricing on bond trades every 15 minutes on Bloomberg. So it provides transparency into pricing. It's a FINRA product that is available to all traders on Bloomberg. So every time you're looking at a bond, you can essentially go to Trace and see if something similar traded, and that provides you a data point. You did not have that pre-2008. So you really had to do a lot of homework to assess what the right price should be on a bond. You had to make calls. You had to talk to dealers to come up with some type of valuation assessment. But Trace essentially now just gave you a dollar price. If something traded at 95 and you were you know, a buyer or a dealer, all you had to do was make sure your, your bid was four to five points behind 95. You really didn't have to do a lot of homework. So I think that, that really speedened the pace of the pricing decline this time around. And dealers don't have the same capacity they had in 08. Uh, it was buy side to the rescue. And as, as a buy side participant, we are looking for opportunities to buy cheap bonds, not really create flow. So the market making function also somewhat was disconnected or kind of disappeared this time around versus 2008. And one thing I think a lot of people have not really talked about is working from home. I think everybody with the shutdown has been working in basements or in satellite offices. So the lack of connectivity and the daily interaction that is necessary for a trading desk to be efficient and functional, I think that wasn't there. I think that made bids and pricing a little challenging. Christopher, I'd also just want to highlight that I think different from 2008 as well, technology-wise, would be you know, what we're seeing with regards to the flow from ETFs as well here. And, and I think that Rishi's point on trace compounds the problem of you know, what, we had, what we experienced in the first two weeks of March. I think that you know, ETF ARB has become a much bigger part of the high-yield market than it was in 2008. And with ETFs trading so frequently and regularly when they can trade it, you know, on, on exchanges at a, at a one cent bid offer and trade at a significant discount relative to where underlying bonds trade, you would start to see those ETFs sell, whether it be 
500,000 bonds or 5 million bonds, if they're selling at a significantly lower price to meet what's going on with the, with the ETFs themselves, you, you trace basically made it impossible to be able to keep up with what prices were doing at that point. And it just drove prices lower and lower quicker, much quicker than they did back in 2008 and 2009. I think we're going to have a lot of postmortems on this one to see what parts of the plumbing worked better and which parts uh, didn't work quite so well. One of the things that was also different this time around or has been different this time around is the speed with which the Fed and the Treasury have responded. And I think we all remember back in 2008, 2009, there was a slow drip of new programs and new acronyms that we were learning as the Treasury was working with the Fed, restore order to markets back then. It seems like a lot of those old familiar acronyms have come back to save the day in many ways. Rishi, let me start with you. In terms of your markets, I think it's been a slower response or a more um, uh, nuanced response. Yeah, I think the market in general, at least our market, was expecting something similar just because it existed, there was a lot of talk, and it happened pretty quickly on March 25th. So I think there was a part of the market that was expecting the Fed to act in a way to at least introduce something like TALF to provide liquidity, at least in the higher quality AAA sectors of the market. And that happened. So once that happened, credit cards, autos, everything that was liquid essentially tightened pretty quickly and it happened over like a period of a week and what's really happened and now you know the fed announced a change to some of the initial announcement on march 25th they announced a new term sheet last week and that really has created a you know has created winners and losers in in our markets where you have a lot of the higher quality paper that the fed is willing to provide financing for through calf trading pretty well, but there are other meaningful sectors that have been excluded, you know, like consumer loans or aviation, timeshare, franchise. These sectors have become meaningful parts of the ABS market. And a lot of the senior bonds in these sectors are also IG rated, but are not eligible for TAL. So it's created this further bifurcation in pricing and trading. And you're basically seeing higher volumes and tighter spreads for anything that's TALF eligible. And Collateral that is not TALF eligible right now is grinding tighter, but it's not seeing the same magnitude of response from a spread standpoint that you're seeing in broader credit markets like IG and high yield or within securitized itself. I mean, there are segments of the RMBS market, for example, private label RMBS is not included in TALF. Service advance is not included in TALF. They included legacy CMBS, which is really helped CMBS last cash flow AAA spreads come in by about 50 basis points within a week, but there is no help for new issue CMBS. So it's really, you know, bifurcated the market into the haves and haves nots. Thanks, Rishi. And of course, TALF is the term asset-backed securities loan facility that the Fed rolled out both in 2008 and then, and then again this year. And CMBS and RMBS are commercial and residential mortgage-backed securities. Correct. So CMBS is commercial mortgage-backed securities and RMBS is the residential market-backed securities market. Yes. Steve, how about from your perspective? The rollout this time around from the Fed has been pretty quick. Even though a lot of the programs aren't up and running, the market has responded in anticipation that they will be up and running. And they have started, it seems to me, with 
the safer securities and moved down the capital stack to try and re- restore order where they see that is needed help. Yeah, I think in the high yield market, it's been interesting. I think there are, I mean, I think that I don't know, pre last week's Fed announcement, I would have thought that high yield would have been, you know, outside of what the Fed mandate. You know, we were, I think uh, high yield was looking to what the Fed was doing and the commercial paper markets and some of the markets that Rishi's involved with and seeing that as a positive sign, but not necessarily geared towards high yield. And that helped to install some confidence in the market, albeit at wider prices than, you know, where they had been obviously pre pre-crisis. And we were starting to see signs of the market start to pick up back up because they were feeling some confidence around what was happening uh, in those other markets. And we saw a new issuance in names like Carnival Cruise Lines, Nordstrom's that were doing well. They were pricing at very wide levels and the markets seemed to be absorbing them. And there, a lot of those deals were oversubscribed at the time. Spreads were tightening, prices were moving back up. And then you got the announcement on Thursday that encompassed part of high yield as well, so that the Fed would be able to buy high yield ETFs, buy parts of CLOs, and the market really took off from there. We saw high yield uh, ETFs have their biggest one day gain, something like seven points. They were trading at a seven to seven and a half point premium to underlying cash. So you just started to see everything start to be bid at that point. And uh, since then, we've seen the new issue market pick up. Even further from that deal, like Marriott today, priced at five and three quarters, was twenty billion in the book, so many times oversubscribed. Marriott, which we would consider kind of a very exposed to the COVID crisis, is able to achieve at five and three quarter percent. Just tells you a lot about the health of the market and what a lot of the Fed action did to buoy high yield as well last week. It's really been a head spinning uh, response, and we've seen the markets respond as you described. Let's just talk a little bit about some of the risks and maybe the opportunities that you're seeing ahead. If um, things have stabilized, maybe it's hard to believe that markets are out of the woods right now, but what are the risks that you're most worried about today, Rishi, and where do you see maybe some opportunities in your space? Just starting off with risks, I think one of the biggest things we're looking at is the speed of normalization within the economy, you know, the length of the pandemic potential for flare-up after shutdown policies eased and the impact on the consumer and businesses because, you know, the Fed can buy assets. They can keep the cost of financing low, but they, they can't really create demand, right? Fed can't buy movie or concert tickets or sneakers or plane tickets. So that's what we're really looking at is to see how long this lasts and what the impact on performance will be. From another risk standpoint, given that the Fed has advertised, you know, that they're going to be a backstop for certain securitized sectors and not for others. You know, I think there's an increased cost of trading there, makes some markets a lot more liquid than others, and that remains a risk. I also feel the size of the dealer balance sheet right now, given how small it is, and also the the availability of trace, as I mentioned before, really reduces the dealer's ability to make money. And that's increased the cost of trading because you can see exactly where a dealer bought a bond, their ability to make markets has declined pretty significantly. And that's also resulted in higher costs of trading for the buy side. So, you know, transparency is good, but it's not necessarily good for liquidity or cost of trading, at least the way I've seen it over the last few months. And even before that, um, trace was always a challenge for us, especially in illiquid sectors. Are there 
areas where you think uh, things have been un- unduly sold off, where they might snap back from here? Yes. Yeah, so from an opportunity standpoint, there are a few sectors that we think are pretty attractive. If you look at student loans, there's a portion of the student loan market that is guaranteed by the federal government. And that was not included in TALF. And it is by far the cheapest government-guaranteed sector right now, trading in the 200 context. If you compare that to agency CMBS, which is also government-guaranteed, that trades around 75. And uh, agency mortgages trade around 100. So I think the exclusion of the FELP sector, which is the government-guaranteed student loan sector from TALF, has created this uh, abnormal cheapness in the market. in CMBS, there are single asset, single borrower transactions that are backed by very high quality storage, industrial warehouses, you know, class A office properties, and also medical offices that are trading pretty wide, given the fact that they are not included in TALF. Uh, but the properties and the assets themselves are very attractive and, you know, are trading at 400 to 600 off and really give you a really good potential for total return over a long time frame as some of these some of these assets are seven to nine years long and you know used to trade in the 150 200 context so the total return potential is is pretty good if you go to the infected sectors i think there will be a time where they become more attractive as information comes through and i mean you know a rental car for example or even aviation it's too early to tell whether the current levels are reasonable enough so I think you need a lot more information in those sectors before you make a judgment there. And when you say uh, 75 basis points, that's over, over LIBOR or over the, the risk-free rate? Correct. In, in our market, the, the benchmark essentially is swaps on LIBOR. Steve, what about from your perspective? How have the government support actions fed through to broader fixed income markets? I think it's interesting because I think, you know, short term, I think it's actually the same factor that I think is opportunity and probably keeps me up at night as well. It's sort of uneconomic activity in the marketplace that could be triggered from ratings downgrades or from leverage triggers or anything like that, that that sort of force selling. They actually produce some of the best opportunities because there'll be dislocation in prices and, and good relative value opportunities that you can find in the market. And we're seeing a lot of those opportunities right now in both bonds and loans. But it also makes you nervous around what's in the system now, what you could drop that could you know, wave on more selling as well. So it's both a benefit and, a, and, and something that you'd be nervous about. Longer term, we're nervous around like how long we're all going to be at home, how much longer uh, the economy is going to be shut down, how will that affect a lot of the credits that we're involved in right now. A lot of assumptions are being made around how much longer we're going to be in our homes rather than being out and about. And the market will have to digest that over a period of time to see which credits will be winners and losers. Yes, I think investment is always uh, an effort to gauge human psychology and fear and confidence. And uh, this time, maybe more than others, we're being forced to try and make that kind of an assessment about a, a global pandemic and people's sense of safety and how quickly they and government measures and new testing and other ways of containing the disease will get us back to normal. And in the meantime, how much damage is inflicted on the assets in which we're, we're invested. Well, listen, thank you both. This has been a very interesting conversation, particularly getting your perspectives from your front row seat on the action and also your help in kind of keeping us focused on what you think are 
both important risks uh, over the next few weeks and maybe some things we should pay a little bit more attention to that have been unfairly disrupted by these markets. So thanks very much for joining us, and we appreciate your help. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me as well, Christopher. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to episode eight of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.